take our Bibles tonight, turn over to the book of Joel, Joel, Joel chapter 3, Joel chapter 3, that secret place, that's an amazing place, isn't it? You say, I don't know what you're talking about, well, you better find out, you'll need it sooner or later. All right, Joel chapter 3, <clears throat> probably work this stuff out here as we go. My voice, I don't know why, it's just kind of having some problems here. <clears throat> Joel chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, the Bible says, <clears throat> Multitudes, multitudes, in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. 
The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter His voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of His people and the strength of the children of Israel. In this particular passage, we're dealing with basically something that's going to transpire into the future. We see the Valley of Megiddo here. We would often refer to it as Armageddon. And again, it addresses a valley, the Valley of Megiddo. And there's a couple of things that we understand about this valley. We read about it and we see this uh, situation taking place and transpiring. But in the book of Revelation, we note that the Antichrist is going to gather a number of forces together in the earth. And of course, no one likes Israel at this point. Everyone as a whole is anti-Israel for the most part. There may be a few allies there, but as a result, the Antichrist is going to be on the warpath toward them as well. Of course, some people will say, well, America is one of those allies and different things like that, but we'll see. Uh, Maybe you can find out. I'll be in heaven, but nonetheless, I've already been raptured out by then. Maybe you'll be here to figure it out, but I don't really care either way, to be honest with you at that point, whether America's on their side or not, because I'll be gone. I'll be in heaven already. Um, but we have this valley, and so he's going to gather these forces together in Revelation chapter 16. And then in Revelation chapter 14, there's a tremendous battle that's described. Look at this battle in Revelation chapter 14, this valley of Megiddo, chapter 14 of the book of Revelation, verse 17. Chapter 14, the book of Revelation. That's what it says in verse 17. It says, And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the uh, clusters of vine of the earth, uh, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city and blood came up of the winepress even unto the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Now a furlong is six hundred and sixty feet. That's basically what we we understand it to be. Six hundred and sixty feet. You multiply that by a thousand thousand, feet. <clears throat> excuse me, 1,600, my, my, I'm sorry, my voice is driving me nuts and I'm having a hard time focusing when my voice doesn't work, it's hard for me to preach. So um, <clears throat> anyway, when you take that, uh, the amount of, I just turned back, how many is it? Is it 1,500, 1,600? Okay, thank you, very good. So 1,600 furlongs, 660 feet times 1,600, that comes out to 200 miles. Okay, you can multiply, divide by 5,000, you know, 280 feet, and you come up to 200 miles. So what we have here in the midst of this battle is we're going to have blood literally raised up to the horse's bridle for 200 miles. I mean, we got a lot of men dying. we got a lot of people shedding blood here. This is going to be a major battle that takes place in a valley, the Valley of Megiddo. 
And again, that's the Armageddon that we often refer to or hear about. We don't have to worry about that because obviously that transpires and takes place after the seven-year tribulation. So we're already gone. The rapture of the church has taken place. The seven-year tribulation has transpired. And now we have the return of Jesus Christ in chapter 19 of Revelation. And we have Armageddon, that great battle that takes place. The Valley of Megiddo, and there it is. So, <clears throat> so bad, so uh, horrible will this battle be that literally they'll be burying the bodies for seven months following it. It's estimated that over 200 million people will die in this battle. <clears throat> now that's, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of blood. And that's a major, major offensive um, move by our Lord. He's going to destroy Satan and his armies. Now, <clears throat> again, the Valley of Megiddo. But you know there are some other valleys that are spoken of in the Bible as well. We have the Valley of Elah. <clears throat> some of us remember that battle. Of course, that battle has to do with David and Goliath. That's found over in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17. Let's take our Bible and look over there very quickly. 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning in verse 2. 1 Samuel 17. One of the great Bible characters... One of the favorite Bible characters of many, little David here. <clears throat> Chapter 17, verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side. And there was a valley between them. A valley between them. Again, another valley. We had the valley of Megiddo. Now we have the valley of Elah. And we see how that turns out as well. Ultimately, in the end, we know that David slays Goliath there in that valley. Even though he faces a, a, a man of war from his youth, even though Goliath is trained, a trained veteran at warfare, I mean, he can wield a sword and throw a spear and he can block with a, a, his, uh, his um, <clears throat> shield. The fact is, is that little David, we know, in the power of the, of the God of heaven, goes there and defeats this great giant. You know, it's believed... Uh, as we read through that, you know, we see that, you know, uh, Goliath, they, they believe, was anywhere upwards from about 9 foot 9 to 10 foot tall. Some have even said if a cubit was, was larger, and some believe a cubit can be upwards of 21 to 22 inches, some believe that. If that's the case, then Goliath could be almost 12 feet tall. So we know that either way, he's a pretty good-sized guy. He's between 9.5 feet to about 12 feet, depending on how large of a cubit you use. Um, so either way, I don't think he's somebody we'd want to mess with. And um, this guy here, I mean to tell you, his coat of mail, the Bible calls it a coat of mail, was 156 pounds. Can you imagine that, that thing he wears to protect him from swords and spears and things to block some of the, you know, the strikes of a sword, that was 156 pounds. I, I mean, how, how much weight, Cody? Too much. Okay, how much? 175, that's too big. Um, well, let's see here. No, I'm not even going there, Nate. <laughs> not even going there, brother. Anyway, stand up there, Cody, stand up for just a second. It was, just, uh, it was, it was probably about 20 pounds less than what Cody weighs. Now, just stick Cody on your back for a while. <clears throat> Give him a piggyback ride for a while and see how you feel. I mean, that's how heavy his coat of mail was. And we're not talking about the U.S. mail. We're talking about that thing he puts on his body for protection. You may sit down. Thank you. 
I can't even imagine that. Can you imagine how heavy that was? 156 pounds. And then it says he had a weaver's beam. You know, I mean, this guy, a weaver's beam was tough for a man to even lift. I mean, let alone wheeled around. You imagine that. His spearhead was almost 20 pounds. Just the spearhead on the end of his spear, 20 pounds. I mean, we can't even fathom how strong this man was. We can't even imagine how, how difficult it would have been to face him, let alone defeat him. And yet there in this valley of Elah, little David, with God's great strength and power behind him and with him and before him, brings down that giant. We see other valleys in the Bible. We see the valley of Megiddo. We note the valley of Elah. But then there's the valley of Aphek. And again, that particular valley is one in which Israel would ultimately fight Syria. We read about it in the book of 1 Kings chapter 20. Look there if you would please. 1 Kings chapter 20. Go to the right of Samuel there. You'll find Kings chapter 20. Israel was comprised of ten tribes following the kingdom split. We know originally there were twelve tribes, but remember once David goes off the scene, then we have his son Rehoboam, and we have uh, Jeroboam, and ultimately the kingdom is split between the two. So Jeroboam ultimately heads up Israel, which included and comprised itself of ten of these particular uh, tribes. Now we have time that has elapsed and we come to a place where there's a king by the name of Ahab. Ahab, of course, is a very wicked and sinful king, evil king, the most evil recorded in the Bible, really, and uh, one that is often referred to when dealing with evil kings. And so, nonetheless, they had rebelled against God. They had early, it began early with some idol worship and they turned their back on God, but in spite of it all, God in His great mercy and His love for His people would, would still come to their aid at times. He would still help them in the midst of their troubles and their trials and even in this, this situation when they were facing a tremendous enemy. Nonetheless, at some point, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, he comes knocking on the castle door demanding everything that King Ahab had. He said, I want, I want your wives and I want your silver and I want everything that's valuable to you. And, and, you know, this is interesting. Ahab says, fine, that's, that's okay. Uh, go ahead, Ben-Hadad, you can have it all. You can have that, that's fine. Then Ben-Hadad shows up a little later and sends some of his, his fellows in. He says, I'm going to send a couple of, uh, of my, my servants in. They're going to look around now and, and then tell you everything else they want. And it's funny to me that Ahab finally goes to the people and the men and says, you know what, I was willing to give him my wives. I'm willing to give him my my silver, I'm willing to give him some other things. But now he wants to send some servants around. He wants to take everything that you have too. And those guys go, "Uh uh-uh, ain't happening. And so nonetheless, there's going to be a great fight on our hands. And so Israel had a tremendous victory over Syria. And the Bible tells us that they fought Syria in the hills. And then God then turned around and told Ahab, you've had this tremendous victory, but it, I, let me tell you, in one more year from now, Ben-Hadad's going to be back. And he's not going to be content in this defeat. He'll be back to fight again. 
And you know, <clears throat> nothing changed with Ahab. Ahab didn't turn to God. Ahab didn't say, thank you, Lord, for all you did for us. What a blessing it is to have a God on our side as big and as strong as our God. And so, you know what, probably, more than likely, there's a good chance that Israel would have been defeated by Ben-Hadad. But here's what happened. Look at 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 23. <clears throat> Notice what Ben-Hadad's advisors told him about the battle. Chapter 20, verse 23. And the servants of the king of Syria said unto him, Their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore they were stronger than we, but let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. Somehow they deducted or come to this conclusion that the reason that they were defeated was because theirs are the gods of the hills. And that's why they beat us. But if we fight them in the plain, or as later on the Bible says, the valley, then we will win because our gods are stronger than theirs. Theirs are strong in the hills, but ours is stronger in the valley. <laughs> Look at 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 28. That was not the right thing to say. Because notice how God responds. Verse 28. And there came a man of God. You know, when you're in a mess, the man of God's a good person to see, show up. And that, that's a nice thing when the man of God shows up when you need him. <clears throat> and notice again, and there came a man of God and spake unto the king of Israel and said, Thus saith the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys. Therefore will I deliver all this great multitude unto thine hand, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Why in the world, first of all, this, this amazes me. Why would he have to prove to Ahab and Israel that he's the God? You know, the, that's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, then you'll know that I am the Lord. You had thought they'd have known that already. I guarantee you the Syrians started questioning it because when they did go and fight Israel, because they had said that he was not the God of the valleys but only the hills, let me tell you something, they found out firsthand that he indeed was the God of not only the hills but the valleys. And the Bible tells us that 127,000 Syrians died. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? I mean, we, we have, uh, I think there were three soldiers or six soldiers that passed, that died as a result of uh, over there in, in um, um, Afghanistan here this past week or something. 127,000 in one battle. Can you imagine how many, I mean, we didn't even, in, in, in uh, the Vietnam, from what I understand, there were 50,000 or more troops that died as a result of a 10-year war. In one battle, 127,000 died. This is the great power of our God. And He did it all because of, for His name's sake. He is the God of the hills and the valleys. So we have these valleys in the Bible. Uh, the valley of Megiddo, which is Armageddon. We have the Valley of Elah, where we find David and Goliath. We see the Valley of Aphek, where we see Israel and Syria. 
So what do we learn about valleys in the Bible? What's some things we can learn about the valleys? Well, let's have a word of prayer and see what we can learn. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, that you'd just be with us tonight. You'd speak to our hearts and encourage us from your word. Lord, we need it. Lord, what a tremendous song tonight the choir sang. And then the ladies step up here and sing another one and just, I mean, hit a home run. Lord, I mean, it'll go perfectly with what we're discussing and dealing with here. And we thank you so much, Father, for how you just dovetail everything together and make it fit. And Lord, we thank you so much that you are the, just the, uh, the great designer, the architect. Father, that all things, Father, work together for good to them that love God who are called according to your purpose. Father, bless us now tonight. Speak to us and use us. And may we learn and grow and glean. In Jesus' name, amen. So what do we learn from the valleys in the Bible? And again, these were just a couple of the valleys, but we noticed some things about valleys. Number one, we learned that we will all be in the valley at some time or another. In Joel chapter 3, verse 14, our text The Bible says, multitude, multitudes in the valley. Say, well, you didn't finish it. I know, we'll get there. But the fact is, there's multitudes, multitudes in the valley. Well, you know, that sounds a lot like everybody. Multitudes, multitudes. That sounds more than I can count. The fact is, is that every one of them are ultimately in the valley. Every last one of us ultimately will be in a valley if we're not already or have not been. You say, what do you mean by a valley? Well, maybe an emotional valley. You know, in a valley where you feel discouraged or depressed or down in the dumps. No one's ever felt like that here, I'm sure. Maybe physically. You're ill, you're sick. Maybe you've gotten some bad news from the doctor or you have some kind of disease or situation or circumstance that you find yourself in. Maybe it's a spiritual valley that you find yourself in. Maybe it just seems like every time you go to the Word of God, it's so dry and it doesn't seem to do anything for you anymore and you just feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling even. You're in a valley. I've told the story before and matter of fact, had a whole message on it not too long ago, but I told you about how I'd been striking out all the time and finally I stepped up to the plate that one time and boy, I mean to tell you, when the pitch came in, I swung and bam, that ball took off off that bat and I blasted me a homer. The longest hit I ever hit in my life. And then I went right back into the slump. You know what we learned? As long as you're holding that bat and you're at the plate, you've got a chance to hit a homer. And not only that, as long as you keep getting up there, sooner or later you will hit something. Hey, listen, you don't hit anything sitting on the bench. You only hit something when you're at the plate. And may I say today, you may be a little bit discouraged and you may find yourself in a valley and we all will. If we're not there, we're going into one or we're coming out of one or something. But the fact is, is that sooner or later, you're going to be in one of those. But don't quit. Don't lay down the bat. Just keep on going for God and keep swinging. Because sooner or later, you'll hit some. Two hunters were, they, they were out in the woods and they came across a bear that was so big that, man, I mean, it just scared the life out of them. So big was this bear that they, they, they just freaked out. I mean, they dropped their guns and rifles and they ran for cover. One fella, he climbed right up a tree. I don't know how good a job that was, but this one couldn't climb trees. He was so big, I guess. But anyway, he climbed up a nearby tree. The other one went to a cave. Well, the bear was in no big hurry to eat, so he just kind of kind of sat down there between the tree and the cave to kind of 
reflect on his good fortune. And suddenly, for no apparent reason at all, I mean no reason, the, the hunter in the cave just comes running out. I mean, he almost runs right into that waiting bear. I mean, almost right into his arms. And he hesitates for a second, then he runs right back on into that cave. Same thing happened again. I mean, the fellow up in the tree can't even believe what he's seeing. And finally, he's yelling at his companion, saying, Woody, Woody, are you crazy? Stay in the cave. Stay in the cave till he leaves. Woody yells back up, Can't. There's another bear in there. You know, sometimes it seems we go from one problem to the next, doesn't it? I mean, one trial, one trouble, one tribulation to the next. One valley to the next. And the truth is, is that that's life, isn't it? Sometimes it just seems that every time we look up, there are only clouds and rain in our future. In John chapter 16, verse 33, the Bible says, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Wow. I'll tell you, sometimes that's a hard reality to grasp. But the fact is, is that what we learn from some of our valleys in the Bible and what we've noted already tonight is that we will all be in a valley at some time or another. Number two, we learn that the enemy loves to attack in the valley. Man, does the enemy love to attack in the valley. You know, again, Goliath was in the valley of Elah. I mean, Goliath is a type of antichrist. And so, therefore, he's a type of Satan. And what we find is that Goliath is there in that valley. And boy, I'll tell you what, it doesn't matter who you are when you're in the valley. The devil, the enemy, loves to attack you. Syria was in the valley. The Antichrist is in the valley of Megiddo. I mean, that's where the enemy seems to attack us. And you know, the enemy knows when... We're in a valley, and they know that we're very vulnerable at that point. You know, you are. When you get down and discouraged, when you're in a valley in life, you, you, you are. You're very vulnerable, and I'm very vulnerable. And boy, I'll tell you what, the enemy knows that. He knows that stress and pressure weigh heavily on you in a valley. He also realized that most folks, honestly, most people make Horrible decisions in the midst of a valley. Horrible. They're facing trouble in their life, and if they're not careful, being frantic to ease the pain, they, they, they make a quick and ill-advised decision. Never make decisions when you're in a mess. Be careful when you're under pressure. That's why it's important when you go to buy a car, you, you don't buy it necessarily the very day you walk in the door. You walk away and think about it that night. And I'm sorry for those that are selling cars in our midst. <clears throat> but, but the fact is, is that sometimes when you're under pressure, hey, look, has anybody ever went to one of those deals where you get a free trip, but you got to sit and listen to a spiel? about buying some kind of condo or something? Man, I'll tell you what, you want to talk about some very, very good salespeople. Man, they are good. But what do they always want you to do? You need to make this decision today. This offer is only good now. 
Isn't that funny? They want you to make a decision right now. You know why? Because you're under pressure. And when we're under pressure, sometimes we make bad decisions. Or sometimes we don't really see the whole picture. And that's often the case. And so, guess what? The enemy loves to attack in the valley. You know, predators are prone to attacking the weakest among the herd. Or they're attacking those that lag behind. And boy, when you get in a valley, let me tell you what, the predator, he's, he's there. He is the most vicious and ruthless predator of all, that's Satan. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, you know it probably by heart, but it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. I wonder, are you in a valley today? And does it feel as though all the forces of evil are opposing you? Maybe you've felt that way in the past. You know what that's like. Again, when you look up, are there only clouds and rain in the forecast? You know, we'll all be in a valley at some time or another in our lives. Every last one of us. And you can bet on the devil attacking you in the depth of that valley. When it seems that it can't get any darker, he'll definitely try to make it darker. Number three, we must all make a decision to either trust God or not to trust God while in the valley. That's a decision we make. Notice again in our passage, he says, it's the valley of decision. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Every time you're in a valley, you're going to have to make some decisions. That's just the way it is. You're going to have to decide whether you're going to trust the Lord or not. I'll tell you what, in the midst of a valley, when you are in a valley, it's hard sometimes to see God. Sometimes it gets dark and we can't see Him. Oh, He's there. As we've said before, I preached a message years and years ago, God is in the darkness. But the fact is, is that the darkness hides Him. The first decision that we have to make is to trust God. You have to make that decision. You have to, you and I have to place that, place that situation in His hands. I mean, it is as simple as taking this glass of water and literally, come on up here, uh, yeah, this time, yeah. It's as this simple. Here, 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 here's my situation. And it is as simple as saying, here, Lord, I place it in Your hands. That is literally how we have to visualize our situation in the midst of a valley or a difficult time of tribulation or trial. We have to literally hand it to God and give it to Him. I want that back because you don't need to be drinking that during service, young man. You'll probably spill it. Fortunately, it's not pop and won't stain the floor. <clears throat> but we all make, have to make a decision. You know what? It's not going to be your wisdom... It's not going to be your problem-solving skills that will give you the greatest relief. It's going to be God alone that can do that. Just like that song said, the secret place. I mean, He knows the outcome. He knows the end. And I'm going to be honest with you. I, I struggle with this. It's not easy to give God those circumstances, those situations. Obviously, the more we go through them, the easier it becomes to do so. We see God in them. 
But the fact is, is that there are circumstances and situations in our lives that weigh so heavy on us, and if we're not careful, we still try to bear them, try to lift them up, we try to carry them ourselves. In Joel chapter 3, verse 16, our passage says, The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of His people and the strength of the children of Israel. He's the key. Listen, in that valley there of Aphek, whenever uh, King Ahab and the children of Israel were facing the Syrians, I mean, this was a mighty army. Man, it seemed bleak and it seemed overwhelming to them, I'm sure. But the God of heaven, He had guaranteed the victory. They literally could have went to bed and never slept. They could have never found rest in the least. They could have worried about the enemy. They could have said, there's no way we can win. It doesn't matter what God says. It doesn't matter what God has promised. The fact is, is that look at all those enemy uh, soldiers out there. We cannot win. They could have worried themselves to death. Or they could choose to just simply trust God. The truth is, whether or not they were going to die or not, really, in the end, the worrying wouldn't help. It wouldn't have helped a bit. It had just made them miserable from the time that they saw the enemy till the time they actually took a sword. But we're good at worrying, aren't we? Fretting. We need to make a conscious decision to either trust God or not to. It, you, you're going to trust Him or you're not. Psalm 56, 3, the psalmist says, What time I am afraid, I will trust in Thee. See, it's really up to you whether you'll trust the Lord or not. Nobody else. Someone says, yeah, but it's, so, it's not always easy. It doesn't matter. It's still a choice. It's a decision we make. We make that decision. Every time we go into the valley, every time it seems like the, the world's against us, every time we're faced with an obstacle or situation that seems to be too big, we decide whether or not we're going to trust the Lord with it or whether or not we're going to bear it ourselves. We make that decision. Every time. David made a decision in the valley. He decided he was going to trust the Lord. Israel made a decision, we're going to trust the Lord. Number four, finally, this one's six pages long. <clears throat> Not only one, we'll all be in the valley at some time or another. Two, the enemy loves to attack in the valley. Three, we must all make a decision to either trust God or not while in the valley. Number four, God always grants the victory to those that trust Him. God always grants the victory to those that trust Him. Every single time. <laughs> I know what someone's thinking out there. I knew somebody that trusted the Lord and they still died of their cancer. I know somebody's thinking that. I knew somebody that trusted the Lord and their marriage still ended. And yeah. See, what you forget is that this isn't about everybody else. It's about you and God. 
See, I've known people that have lost loved ones and still come out on top side. While other ones just fall to pieces. I'm not talking about that their heart's broken. I'm talking about weeks and months and years later. They're still so devastated they can't even function. I've known folks who have gone through horrible divorces who in the end have still come out on top side. Did not allow that to destroy them, wreck and ruin their whole life. Instead, they, they found peace in the presence of God. They found that secret place. And for them, although it was a horrible circumstance and a horrible situation, they found victory in the midst of it all. They found that peace of God that passeth all understanding, according to Philippians chapter 4. See, the decision is to trust. And that decision to trust is the victory. You have to decide to trust, but once you make the decision to trust, you already have experienced victory. God fights the battle then. And let me tell you, God doesn't lose battles. Oh, He's not going to make people... You know, we live in a world where Christianity thinks that God has to do everything the way they think it should be done, or He's not a big God. You know, he, if he was really God, then he could have saved my marriage. If he was really God, he could have taken away this disease. If he was really God, he could have spared this accident. If he was really God, if he was God, he could do this. We sound as bad as the world does. We miss the whole point. He's God. He knows more than we know. I don't understand it. And honestly, I don't want to just keel over and die right now in the pulpit. I have some things I'd like to see happen. I've got a granddaughter on the way. I want to see that granddaughter. And there's some things I'd like to accomplish in the ministry. And there's some things I'd like to do. And I'd like to do this. And I'd like to do that. And I'd like to see this. And I, 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 I. Let's see what the problem with that is. It's all about me. It's not what does God want. Does God want me to see my granddaughter born? Does God want me to hold that baby in my arms? Does God want me to still be around for my children and my church and my church family? Does God want me here? That's His business. It's really not mine. And He is just in whatever decision He makes. Because He is God. But that's a hard concept to grasp today. We've been brought up in America where everything is for our comfort, our good. Everything is to meet our needs, do things our way. Man, if you don't treat me with respect while you're waiting on me, if you somehow give me a mean look when I ask for a little bit of extra mayo, you're not getting a tip, lady, because you're here to serve me. And that's our mentality. I mean, it's right that they should be serving us. That's their job, but hold on. It's really not that we're upset with them so much. It's that we feel we've been slighted. Our pride and our arrogance is so off the charts today. For 10 years, Robert Moffat and his wife Mary labored faithfully in southern Africa. They didn't have one ray of encouragement to brighten their way. Not at all. I mean, they couldn't report a single convert. Can you imagine that? 10 years on the mission field, not one convert. Finally, directors of their mission board, they began to question the wisdom of continuing the work there. And I can understand why they would question it, and they have every right to question that. 
The thought of leaving their post, though, the thought of leaving Southern Africa, it just brought such grief to them. They were, they were so devoted to the Lord, so devoted to their mission field, so devoted to the people. They felt for sure that God was still in their labor. And they were positive that God would still turn people to Christ in His season. So they stayed. And for a year or two longer, it seemed that darkness kind of reigned over the couple and over their ministry. And one day, a friend in England, he sent word to the Moffats that she wanted to mail them a gift. And she asked what they would like. Trusting that the Lord, in His time, would ultimately bless their work and meet the need and provide them with souls, Mrs. Moffat said, send us a communion set. I'm sure we're going to need it soon. And you know, God honored the faith of that woman. The Holy Spirit moved upon the hearts of those villagers, and soon there was this little group, a small group, but nonetheless, light years beyond what they had been, six converts united to form the first Christian church in that land. The communion set from England was delayed in the mail. It never it didn't arrive on time. But on the very day before the first Lord's Supper, it got there. It arrived. Right on time. God knew all along, didn't He? For ten years, no converts. Living alone among tribesmen. Enduring the harsh conditions and extreme weather. A valley? <laughs> yeah, I would say so. A battle? Without a doubt. Still, they just chose to trust the Lord. In the midst of that valley, in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that hard time, they said, we believe in God and trust the Lord for victory. And in time, God did indeed bless. You know, it's interesting that not only did the people of Africa be blessed because of the faithfulness of the Moffats, but their own family was blessed. As a matter of fact, Mary, their daughter, would later marry missionary David Livingston, the famed missionary to Africa. And that work in Africa continued, and God's faithfulness was seen as thousands and thousands ultimately came to Christ. See, it's not the valley that you and I need delivered from. Folks have lived, they've loved, they've laughed in the valley for years. I mean, there are battles to be fought. There are floods to be faced, without a doubt. But there are great victories experienced as well. I'll be honest, I do not like to be uncomfortable. I don't like pain. I don't like the unknown. I don't like those things. But I can allow those things to rule me. Or I can just hand them to God. It's up to me. That's my decision to make. I, I can either lay my head on the pillow at night and sleep, or I can lay awake worrying about things I can't control. That's, that's my decision. Someone says, I just can't help it. Yes, you can. Think on these things. Bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Oh, we, we can't. 
And with God's help, we can do it. See, when God gets so big that we can truly trust Him with our problems and trust Him in the valley, then we will not have to worry about it ourselves. But so often I'm concerned that in my own life and maybe in yours as well, the God we say we love and serve is not as big as we say He is at times. At least not to us. We talk a good game. We don't always live it. Again, the valley's not the problem. It's the fear that's the problem. Fear of the future. Fear of what could be. Fear of impending doom. Fear of being alone and helpless. In 2 Timothy 1.7, the Bible says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. There's no doubt that there are troubles ahead. There's no doubt that each of us will find ourselves in the valley. But the very reason our hearts are heavy, minds are in turmoil, our outlook so grim, is because of fear. Suffering. I mean, the song says it all when it says, Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. That's biblical. And faith says, Not only do I believe you exist, God, but I believe you're big enough to give victory. And you're big enough to handle every problem in my life. I I, I don't know how you're going to let it turn out. But however you let it turn out, that's your business. Because you're that big. And you've been that good all my life. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. Boy, if we could really believe that and apply it, then ultimately we too would trust the Lord in the midst of the valley. Because see, the decision to trust is the victory. That's the reality tonight. I love this story, but over in Burma, I've used it a number of times, but Judson was lying on a foul gel, foul gel cell. 32 pounds of chains wrapped around his ankles and feet, tied to a bamboo pole. And one of the prisoners said mockingly to Dr. Judson, he said, What about the prospects of the converts of the heathen? And immediately, instantly, Judson said, The prospects are just as bright as the promises of God. (laughs) Even though he's got 32 pounds of chains around him and he's stuck in a prison for preaching the truth of the Word of God. Man, he says, let me tell you something. The prospects are just as bright as the promises of God. You know who he was trusting in the valley? The Lord. Do you know what he had in his life? Victory. We may look at him and say, what a mess. 
But he said, God's given me the victory. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. It's your decision tonight. Bear it alone or give it to Christ. If you try and help him bear it, you're going to fail. Give it all to him by faith. And the decision to trust is the victory. You say, I need answers. Of course you do. Remember, he has all the answers. Trust him to fight your battles. Turn your ear heavenward. Get your counsel from God. Trust him and he'll deliver you. The decision we make tonight is whether we'll trust him or not, especially in the valleys. That's the ultimate decision, isn't it? To trust or not to trust. That is the question. And that's a decision only you and I can make. Have you trusted him for your salvation? That's first and foremost. You need to settle that one if you haven't already. But if you've already trusted him with your eternal soul, will you trust him with your life? Father, we come to you.